Well, thank you, Kevin and Matthew, for leading us in those songs, those anthems of praise that are common to the church, not only here, but around Alberta and throughout this world, no doubt. It is a joy for my wife Ange and I and our family to be with you here in La Crete this morning. And uh, it's a joy to have been invited here by Pastor Mike to fill this sacred desk and offer pulpit supply. It's been a, a wonderful time so far this weekend in enjoying fellowship at the campground and um, eating to our heart's content, a lot of fellowship. Um, I was telling Ange, and I've told a few of you, it feels very Tusik, and uh, we're thankful for that. We're from a Mennonite community originally in southeastern Manitoba, just a, a hop, skip, and a jump from Steinbach, a little town called Grunthal. And so we feel very much at home among you. And um, just to borrow another, I don't want to... I don't want to show my cards too much with my poor plotich, but news and du schuldig. I, I think you understand. I, I know I messed it up, but. And we invite you to come to, uh, to Spruce, and you can certainly stay with us as you come down to Edmonton area. Well, this morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. I'd already invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be in the first three verses of Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And we'll begin this morning by simply reading the text. Let's read together Philippians 3, and beginning in verse 1 through to the end of verse 3, where we read Paul writing under the inspiration inspiration of the Spirit, he writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision or the mutilation. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the Word of God. Well, before we dive into studying this text, I'd invite you to journey back with me to 1736, and specifically January 25th, which was a Sunday. It was a Lord's Day. And on that day, John Wesley found himself aboard a ship traveling across the Atlantic Ocean on way, on his way to America. Now, we know that the providence of God is always at work. And no doubt with Wesley and his life, the providence of God was active that day as well. For that day, Wesley found himself captured within a life-threatening storm on the high seas. And Wesley's journal records this experience. In fact, he describes this storm this way. The sea broke over. 
split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. So this was an intense storm, and you may have noticed, swallowed us up. So there's more to this story and more regarding the providence of God. See, there's a second providential detail, and that is that on the same ship were a group of Moravians also heading to America. Now, the Moravians were Germans who could trace their spiritual heritage 300 years plus back to the life of John Huss, who was likely maybe even one of the earliest of reformers. And I paraphrase again from Wesley's journal as he observed these Moravians in the midst of these high seas. He wrote this, There was a great seriousness in the Germans' behavior. They proved their humility repeatedly as they served the other passengers. The English didn't behave this way. They receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done more for them. They were constantly attributing all that was going on and even their humility to simply what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for them. And even as they traveled and were mistreated horribly by others on the ship, they showed a continual meekness without complaint. This characterized the Moravians. Well, what came next on that Sunday would eventually, in part, lead to Wesley's own conversion. And again, Wesley's journal reflects some curiosity as he just simply observed these Moravians in the midst of this storm. And he wondered to himself, would this intense storm show the Moravians' faith in Christ to be less than genuine? Well, he continues to write. He says, As they sang a psalm in worship, the ship was engulfed by the seas. The English screamed terribly. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, Was you not afraid? He answered, No. I thank God, no. And I asked again, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. In that trial, Wesley witnessed the difference between those who possess a genuine fear of God and those who fear him not. And upon reflection, Wesley went on to say that it was the most glorious day that he had enjoyed in his life to that point. Now, as I've read through parts of Wesley's journal, I also see, if I read in between the lines, I see that there was a great fear uh, from Wesley. Wesley was terrified amidst that storm. He had a great fear of death in that moment. Well, as the Lord would continue to work providentially in Wesley's life, he would bring more Moravians into into his path. And two years later, now Wesley being back in England, and on the evening of May 28th, 1738, Wesley admits that his heart was still unwilling 
but he attended a meeting regardless, where another Moravian was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. And again, I quote from Wesley's journal, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, you might ask, why am I, why am I sharing this with you? Why do I share this account with you? Well, for two reasons. Because in it, we see Wesley confess to the grace of God. First, he became resolved to absolutely renounce all dependence in whole or in part upon his own works or righteousness, on which he had really grounded his hope of salvation prior in ignorance, as he confesses, from his youth up until that point. He was relying on his works, and his works were of no use. It was futile. But then secondly, Wesley resolved to, together with all the other means of grace, to continually pray for a full reliance on the shed blood of Christ and to trust in Christ as his sole justification, his sanctification, and his his redemption. What can we conclude from this thus far? Well, we can say this. Just as Wesley confessed, we too can say that salvation is by grace alone, resulting in a life that reflects that reality to the glory of God. And that's an important point. You see, when grace is extended to the believer, when we become genuinely saved, we cannot hide that fact. Our lives will reflect that grace that has been given to us as we then walk through life in every aspect of our life, giving glory to God in worship of God. The grace of God in granting us genuine saving faith doesn't produce nominal Christians. It doesn't produce not really Christians. It doesn't produce Christians that are Christian by name only, but not by reality. And Wesley saw this as he observed the Moravians that God had brought providentially into his life. He saw it on the ship, but he also saw it in England as he interacted with many of them. And he came at the same time to realize the absence of God's grace in his own life. Faith that's genuine looks to the righteousness of Christ and, and, and certainly not to one's own works as righteousness. We know that, we know, we, we refer to that as legalism, right? When people are, are looking to their own works and, and then crediting to themselves some form of righteousness, thinking that before God that counts for something, that's legalism. And as Christians, we reject that wholeheartedly. We deny that that has any salvific value. 
We could even say this. It's like taking one's sanctification and raising it up to one's justification. We know that we've been justified by faith in Christ, right? Justified by grace through faith in Christ. And any time that we try to then, as we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, bring that up, raise that up, and attach that in some way to our justification, we are in serious error. Well, why do I say all this? I say this because one's understanding of justification, and by that I mean how is one justified before God? Well, this determines who one places their confidence in, right? Everyone on this planet places their confidence in something. And at the same time, we would also admit that that confidence that one places in someone is going to be made visible to all. One will either place their confidence in themselves, in their own works, and that will be apparent to everyone around them. Or one places his or her confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that too will be evident, right? I've said this before, your theology is going to determine how you live your life. It's going to determine your practice. And you will not rise above your theology. Your view of God will uh, will determine how you live your life in obedience or otherwise. If you have a low view of God, it will be shown by how you live your life. If you have a high view of God, it will be shown by how you live your life. The same can be said not only for the individual, but also for the church. That's a little sidebar, no, no charge on that. Well, I believe that this is Paul's point in Philippians 3 and verses 1 to 3. See, he's drawing a distinction for us. He's drawing a distinction between those who bear the marks of genuine saving faith in Christ. These are those who conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he's drawing a distinction between that group and those who look to themselves in part or in whole for their salvation. And we would say that those people are holding to a whole nother gospel. That is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this, he makes this distinction by pointing out a work that God specifically does in the life of the believer. And that work is by giving them a new heart. And that new heart also is accompanied with new desires then. You don't desire to continue in your old way of life, but rather you're a new creation in Christ and your life reflects that. I've already said every person on the planet rests his or her confidence in something or someone. And we could say that that confidence is either going to be genuine or contrived. It's going to be something that is then made up. It's a manufactured confidence, but without basis, without substance, and not founded on the truth. And therefore, I've decided this morning to title this sermon, True Christian Confidence. True Christian Confidence. Now, I know that Brother Will, Will Reimer, has been taking you through this epistle um, written to the Philippians by Paul. And he's likely already told you about 
Paul's purpose in writing this letter. You see, he's really exhorting the Philippians, the believers in Philippi, over and over again to pursue a joyful, joy, to joyfully pursue Christ. And certainly, joy is a major theme of this letter. And not only does he encourage them and exhort them toward that end, but he also then takes time to thank them for the gift that's been delivered to them. That gift coming by the hand of Epaphroditus, that messenger, that minister that was sent to Paul, even as Paul remains imprisoned in Rome. And so he thanks this church for coming alongside and participating in his gospel ministry. And yet, as we go through this letter, and I'm sure that you've seen, as Brother Will has taken you through there, you'll see that Paul is highly aware that there is opposition in Philippi. There are people persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. And not only that, but there are false teachers coming up against the church as well, really teaching the doctrine of demons to them. And so it becomes necessary that because Paul is acutely aware of this opposition that he then strongly encourages the believers in Philippi. And at the same time, he seeks to persuade them to proper response. And that's what we see. To respond properly, even as false teachers continue to pose a threat to this church in Philippi. Now, if you're taking notes... Let me just give you this by way of argument. I would say this. I would say that the first three verses of Philippians chapter 3 have Paul providing three exhortations that put genuine faith in Christ on vivid display. Three exhortations that put genuine faith in Christ on vivid display. And he does this so that each one of you can test where you are placing your own confidence. There's great purpose in Paul writing these words. And we too need to examine ourselves to see, are we placing our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you're taking notes, I've separated this into an outline with three parts. First, in verse 1, we will see Paul's exhortation to respond joyfully. And then secondly, in verse 2, we'll see Paul's exhortation to watch carefully. And finally, in verse 3, we'll see Paul's exhortation to live faithfully. So that's respond joyfully, watch carefully, and live faithfully. Let's first consider this first exhortation that he gives. And I'd ask you to Draw your attention back to your Bibles in verse 1, where Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Now, we, we need to notice that what Paul is doing here is he's adding yet another vital instruction. And while the text says, finally, really he's far from being finished, this letter. There's more to to give by way of instruction. And he really wants to remind them of the genuine faith in action that's necessary in the life of the believer. And we see that Paul's love here for the church, for those in Philippi, is palpable. He refers to them as brethren. 
And he does so over and over again. This is a term of affection. Sometimes he even refers to them as beloved brethren. And so I would say that brethren and the the term beloved are synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. Ultimately, we see that Paul's heart is knit together with these believers. And in calling them brethren is kind of similar to how parents often will refer to a child by name to get their attention. That's what he's doing here. He wants them to really pay attention to these next words that he is going to give them. These are extremely important words. So he's essentially saying, listen, listen. What is this exhortation that Paul gives? Well, we see in verse 1, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. This is in the imperative. This is a command that he's giving them. You, you all rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, to rejoice is an outward expression of an inward reality, is it not? One cannot rejoice if they first do not have joy within them. And so let's just consider just briefly here a theology of joy as we find in Scripture. We see in in 1 Peter 1 and verse 8 where the Apostle Peter writes, Though you have not seen Him, seen Christ, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This Christian delight that we experience, that we refer to as joy, is rooted in God's unchanging promises. And it's rooted in His eternal spiritual realities. One of those being that new heart that is given to us. Upon salvation, the believer receives a new heart, and that is an eternal spiritual reality. Well, I'm sure you're aware of Galatians 5 and Romans 14 that indicate to us, really tell us that joy is part of the fruit that's produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This is the Spirit's work. This is the work of God in the heart of man. And really, when that fruit is present, it's indicative of a genuine saving faith possessed by that person. We also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3 that joy is a common experience among believers. What do I mean by that? Well, joy is not something that's just simply sprinkled out and some of you have it while others of you don't. That's not true. Joy is a reality in every believer's life. Is it present? Does it seem to be present at all times? Perhaps not. But it is present in the life of the believer. And we know that no matter good things that are taking place in the life of the believer or extreme hardship, joy remains present. We see this actually in James chapter 1. We know that Christian joy is unlike a worldly happiness. James writes in in James chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why does he write that? Why should we take joy in our trials? Well, we know that they serve great purpose in the life of the believer. 
The testing of your faith produces endurance, he goes on to write. And so this has a further sanctifying effect in the life of a believer. Christian joy is manifest, it's made manifest, it's, it presents itself even as it's sourced in the Lord. Joy is the result of you and I being in union with Christ, another spiritual reality. And so it's no wonder that Paul gives this command, rejoice in the Lord, Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord, Grace Bible Fellowship, because because of the hope that you have in your Lord as his humble servant. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, we know that Paul has already told the Philippians, and you'll see this in chapter 1, and specifically verse 28, where he says, do not be alarmed by your opponents. You see, he knows what's going on because Epaphroditus has delivered to him a report from Philippi. But he goes on to encourage them in this way. In verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, For you, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. You see, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and suffering for his sake, according to that verse, both of those are grace gifts given to the believer. Both of those serve great purpose in the life of the believer. And yet, even as they continue to suffer, even as they continue to be pressured and hounded by false teachers in Philippi, Paul gives them this imperative, rejoice in the Lord. Let that Internal reality become an outward expression. Don't hold that back. Rejoice in the Lord constantly, continually. And this is my exhortation to you then, friends. To rejoice in the Lord. Now, he goes on to say, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard to you. You see, it's no trouble to be repetitious, to be continually reminding you, Lacrete, rejoice in the Lord. As you're walking down the street and you meet up with another believer, rejoice in the Lord. Take time. Or maybe you're facing something that's incredibly difficult. Even in those moments, there's great opportunity for you to rejoice in the Lord. And whether you hear it from Brother Mike or Brother Lauren or any of the other brothers and sisters here, Let us remind one another continually to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. He has done much for us. Paul, in fact, says rejoice. He he gives us instruction for them to rejoice in the Lord nine separate times in this letter alone. And so not only can we say that joy and, and unity are themes, major themes running throughout the course of this letter, but certainly this exhortation to then make this joy visible by rejoicing in the Lord. This is vitally important in the life of the believer. You'll remember Wesley in the middle of the storm. Wesley was not rejoicing in the Lord. However, he certainly saw in the example of the Moravians that continual rejoicing in the Lord, even when it looked like their lives would very well come to an end, in this life-threatening storm. Yet, what did they do? 
They were found worshiping. They were found rejoicing in the Lord. And I have no doubt that Wesley just sat as a silent observer, speechless, and and really wondering, how could this be? Well, the question could be asked, who will the person that is caught up in his own works-based righteousness, who will that person rejoice in? Likely, he'll try to rejoice in himself. He'll try to rejoice in his actions. It's futility. How about, how about when that same person who's depending on his own works for righteousness, how about when he or she faces great suffering? Who then will that person rejoice in? Who will they turn their joy to rejoicing in? Well, we would say this. They likely will not be found rejoicing in their suffering. It's an impossibility. They have nowhere to turn. I'm reminded of a uh, a father from Ottawa. This is about a decade and a half ago already. This story made the mainstream media and was broadcast across the country. This gentleman had traveled from his home some hours away to Ottawa, and while he was away, his whole, fi- his whole family perished in a house fire. And I think he had a large family, seven or more children and his wife, all perished. He was left without a family. This is like a, almost like a Job-like type of, of cataclysm. And it was only a few days after that somebody in the media interviewed him, this man, no doubt, in the midst of immense grief, but I'll never forget the reporter's question. The reporter asked, how do you find the strength to go on in this moment? And you know what that man's response was? It was simple. He said, I have to continue to believe that the promises and the word of God are true. Incredible testimony. And that's where he found his peace. In fact, that's where he found his joy that he could then rejoice in the Lord for all that God has done, all that God has promised, every spiritual reality that God has set in place. And so we ought to, to rejoice in the Lord. Now, maybe you're facing a trial. Maybe you've got this seemingly insurmountable object, obstacle in front of you that you can't see your way around. Maybe even in your workplace here in town, you are being harassed for your faith because you're just simply determined to set your confidence in the grace of God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody doesn't see it that way. Maybe there's strained relationships among you. Maybe it's even within your families. Perhaps there's personal illness that's being faced by some or many. Maybe death has visited recently. My question is this. Are you finding reasons to rejoice in the Lord? Are you doing as Paul has commanded the Philippians to do here, to rejoice in the Lord? Well, there are many reasons to to rejoice in the Lord. We can find many reasons for that, but I'd submit these two to you. Rejoice in the Lord because of the grace that he has given you. And secondly, rejoice in the Lord because that grace has been expressed through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross on your behalf. 
great reasons to rejoice in the Lord. You know, Paul, near the end of this letter, he writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You're familiar with that verse. Always means always. Rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters. And so we've seen this first exhortation to respond joyfully in all things. Let's consider now the second of his exhortations. I'll ask you to train your eyes back down to verse 2 in your copy of God's Word, where we read, Paul writes, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This is a strong warning. How do we know it's a strong warning? Well, it's a threefold repetition that he gives. Beware, beware, beware. This ought to raise our attention. We need to focus on what these warnings are. But it's not only because he's repeated himself three times that this is such a strong warning. He also alliterates in the Greek this warning. That means that dogs, evil workers, specifically evil and mutilation, all three of these words begin with the kappa consonant. Kunos, kakus, and these are three, three words, all beginning with the same letter that he very intentionally uses to make this memorable in the, in the minds of the Philippians. It's no different than when your pastor comes up here and he gives you a three-point outline and every one of the points starts with the same letter. It's so that you, brothers and sisters, can go out throughout the week and you can remind yourselves of what was taught. Oh yeah, I need to remember my attitude. I need to remember my actions. I need to remember my my ambition this week. This is very purposefully done, and we see Paul writing with great purpose. And yet these are harsh words. Dogs, evil, mutilation. These are not gentle terms. Let's first consider beware of the dogs. You see, we live in a in an age where dog the dog is man's best friend, is he not? Well, it was not the case, you know, 2,000 years ago. This is actually a derogatory term, and we see it used in a derogatory manner in the Word of God. This is a word of reproach. Let's admit, dogs will eat anything, will they not? And we see dogs in Scripture licking up Naboth's blood. We see them chewing on the carcass of Jezebel. So these are filthy animals. And it's no wonder then that Paul, even in his days as a Pharisee, would view the Gentiles and even unclean Jews, he would view them as dogs. He would would put this derogatory term upon them. Not only he uses that, but we see other places in the Word of God where dogs are used metaphorically to make reference to fools, false prophets, and now here, false teachers. We see in Proverbs and again the Apostle Peter, in Second Peter, quoting from Proverbs, says this, a dog returns to its own vomit, right? You're familiar with that verse. And so, dog is really a derogatory term. Even Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 6, 
do not give what is holy to dogs. Now he is speaking figuratively there and he's making reference to people. He's not making reference to animals. He's making reference to people there. But in order for us to properly understand what what Paul is, is meaning by dogs here, I think it's valuable for us to go to Revelation 21, or sorry, 22 and verse 15, because dogs are made mention of there as well. Revelation 22, 15, where we read the Apostle John writing, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. These are dogs. You know, just in the previous verse, in verse 14, we see that those dogs that he's making reference to, those are those people whose robes have not been washed. They are those who have no right to the tree of eternal life. They, they have, they are, they are those who will not enter into the celestial city. These really are dissidents. What, what is a dissident? Well, this is a person who opposes the commands that have been given to them. And I have no doubt that as Paul was evangelizing, going from place to place, he was very clear in his instruction. And yet, we see in Galatians, the Judaizers did not pay heed to what Paul had taught them. And they tried to add works onto salvation. So they are opposed to the commands that have been given to them. And not only that, but they are also those who reject authority. They reject rightful authority. Those are the dogs that John is making reference to here in Revelation. And I have no doubt that this is what he's making reference to when he's speaking of these false teachers being dogs in Philippi. They are threatening the saints. They are seeking to defile the church with their false doctrine and with their evil works and with their mutilation, their teaching on circumcision. These are no doubt the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, we might think, well, maybe they disappeared after, you know, they showed up in Galatia. The letter to the Galatians was written in AD 56. And Paul here is now writing in AD 61 or thereabouts. But yet, we see that the Judaizers, this, this um, group that is wanting to return, revert back to practicing and observing the Mosaic law in addition to celebrating the grace given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, these are still operational and have moved, moved even to Philippi. Now, he says, beware of the dogs, but then he also says, beware of the evil workers. These Judaizers are ones who have fallen short of the accepted standard of behavior. They are indeed morally reprehensible because they have determined for themselves what they want to follow. They've made up their own rules, departing from the truth that even Paul gave them. And I would say that they could also be described, and we see Paul using this language in chapter 2 and verse 15 in, in Philippians, where he makes reference to a crooked and perverse generation. That really typifies 
the Judaizers. They are part of that crooked and perverse generation. Why would I say they're crooked and perverse? Well, crooked is a twisting or distortion of the gospel, and the word perverse there is really talking about how they then seek to mislead others. And no doubt, these false teachers in Philippi are seeking to lead astray many other people by, again, attaching circumcision and other observances of the law to one's salvation. But we know what Paul has given in terms of instruction to the Galatians, right? In Galatians 2 and verses 15 and 16, Paul explained that although he himself was Jewish by nature and many others among them, he and others had believed in Christ Jesus so that they might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. He's very clear on that. Not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's an impossibility. But he goes on to say this, and this is really serious. In verse 21 of Galatians 2, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You see, if there's anything that you can do to garner your salvation, then there was no need for Christ to hang on that cross. And so you need to reject any thought that your works are in any way contributing to your righteousness. All that is required has already been accomplished through Christ's work on the cross. And yet, the Judaizers... They were still seeking to add works to salvation. They were teaching that the grace of God accomplished through the cross of Christ was insufficient. They may not have, they may not have articulated it exactly in that way, but simply by saying, no, you also need to be circumcised and observe the Mosaic law, they are certainly implying that there is more to it than just simply the grace of God and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a different gospel. That's a whole other gospel. And I have no doubt that that other gospel is being proclaimed in this community and in every community in Canada. This is the way man works. But we have to reject that different gospel We even have to pay heed to Jesus' warning. We see this in Matthew 24 and 15, where he, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, he said that they are, while they are making proselytes, right, while they're making followers, he says that you make him twice as much a son of hell. So all they're simply doing is leading these people astray and ultimately to eternal their eternal demise. And so it's no wonder that Paul then writes, beware of the evil workers. And I should say this as well. When Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, he's not speaking of three different groups. He's speaking about the same group of people, but he's coming at it from different angles to give you the fullest understanding of what these treacherous people are trying to inflict on the people in Philippi. And so, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. And now, finally, beware of the 
mutilation. Beware of the mutilation. You see, Paul's using a word play here. The NAS, which I use, translates it as false circumcision, and then a little later as the true circumcision in verse 3. But these Greek terms, there are two of them, katatome and peritome. Katatome means to slice or to cut against, to cut something into pieces. Whereas peritome means to cut around, right? The perimeter, peritome is to cut around. And so he is, he's contrasting what they teach compared to what is true from the word of God. This mutilation that he's talking about is really similar to what we see in the prophets of Baal, right? As they, when Elijah builds the altar and then the prophets of Baal, they try to call down fire in unsuccessfully, right? Because there is no Baal. It's a, he's a, a figment of their imagination and it was utterly useless. What did they do? They began to cut themselves. They began to self-harm and mutilate themselves. And really, there's a, there's a, a parallel, I think, that we can draw here. This is really what what Paul is getting at as well. This mutilation is of no avail. It's, it's of no, no value. Now, we could ask this question, why is it that the Judaizers elevated circumcision the way they did? For that, we'd have to go to Genesis 17. I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 17. You see, this isn't something that they made up. This was a a very clear command that was given by God. We see this in Genesis 17 and beginning in verse 9, where we read, God said further to Abram, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout your generations. Verse 10, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then verse 11 goes on to give specific instruction about this being in regards to the flesh of your foreskin, that it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, that this is to occur in verse 12, among every male. And this should take place when that male child is eight days old specifically. And there's a warning that God gives in verse 14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is a serious warning. This physical sign was necessary. And this simply to be an obedient, an act of obedience before God as his covenant people. And so they took this very seriously. But the problem with the Judaizers is now they've elevated the sign of the covenant to the actual promise of the covenant. And they were seeking to be justified by their own works of law together with the grace of God. Now, Paul corrects this, and he spends a lot of time in the book of Romans. I'd invite you to turn to Romans Romans chapter 4, because we see that Paul needs to do a lot of correction here in the Jewish mind with regards to circumcision and to put it in its place and even to correctly define it. 
we understand that that circumcision, physical circumcision, does not lead to one's justification, but that justification has always been by faith and not by works. And we see in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9 where Paul writes, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abram as righteousness. Paul is quoting directly out of Genesis 15 and verse 6. Faith was credited to Abram as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, it was not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so we see that justification preceded the sign of the covenant. So let's not then attach the the sign of the covenant to one's justification because Abram was simply justified by faith and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. There was nothing else, nothing else that he needed to do. He just simply needed to believe in the promise that was given to him even as he thought back to Genesis 3.15 where the Redeemer, that God would send a Redeemer by the seed of woman and everybody was looking to, or I should say those of faith were looking to that promise that God had given, as was Abram. But these, these Judaizers in Philippi, they continued to to follow after the pattern that was set by Israel by just seeking to elevate that sign of the covenant, believing that righteousness was found in observing the law. Again, in Romans chapter 9, Paul speaks toward this end. And we could ask the question, why did Israel not attain righteousness? And why will these Judaizers not attain righteousness by their works either? Well, we see in Romans 9 and verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, faith alone, but as those, uh, as though it were by works, but as though it were by works. And that's exactly what these false teachers in Philippi are doing. They are pursuing uh, righteousness by the cutting off of flesh, and it's futile. Why is it futile? Well, take a look at Romans chapter 10. Next page, likely on your, in your Bible. Romans chapter 10 and verses 3 and 4. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Where is the righteousness of God revealed? Where is the righteousness of God revealed? Well, Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1, where he says, For in it, that it being the gospel, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so it has always been about the gospel. Whether Old Testament saints looking ahead to the promise being fulfilled in the arrival of the Messiah, the one who would redeem, or we on the other side of that historical moment looking back and saying, our righteousness comes from Christ and what he has done and from nothing else. So it's by faith alone. And yet we know this, 
Every religion operating on the face of this planet is a works-based righteousness. It's a work-based type of reward system where one is just simply chasing after doing their own thing, pursuing their own self-righteousness for the reward that they have even fabricated for themselves in their minds, the reward that lies ahead. We see this in Roman Catholicism. We see this in the cults of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We see this in the, in the cult of the Mormons. We see this in the Seventh-day Adventists. We see this in Buddhism, in Islam. You name it. Every religion. I would even say this. You see it in atheism. Everyone is working according to their own imagination, working some type of righteousness, and then having invented the reward that lies at the end. Some of them seem to be more in accordance with the Word of God, but simply aren't. And if they're not fully aligned with the Word of God, then they are in gross and grave error. Every religion other than Christianity, other than genuine saving faith, is a rejection of the gospel of Christ. And it operates on a system of workspace righteousness. And workspace righteousness is just simply self-righteousness. And we know what self-righteousness is in the sight of God. It's filthy rags. It's meaningless. So let's remember these exhortations. So far, we've seen that we ought to rejoice in the Lord. And at the same time, we need to beware. We need to watch carefully. And this is what genuine believers do. Now, finally, let's take a look at verse 3. The exhortation to live faithfully. Train your eyes on your copy of God's Word again. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul lays out for us the tangible evidence that results from one's justification. There's a spiritual heart surgery that takes place whereby the visible effect is the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being given so that you can live and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a regenerated heart that is gifted to you. And we know this. Has God not always looked on the heart of man? He has always looked on the heart. He's never looked on external appearance. He's always looked to the heart of man. In fact, we can say this, and this is from Jeremiah 9 and verse 25, God will punish those who remain spiritually uncircumcised. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will punish all who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised. All who have cut the the flesh off, and yet their hearts remain cold. Their hearts remain in darkness. Their hearts are hardened. And so Paul makes this distinction. We are the peritome. We are the circumcision. We are the circumcision that as he describes in Romans 2 and verse 29, 
This circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. This is the work of God. You see, physical circumcision is the work of man. But spiritual circumcision is the work of God. We see this also in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, where God says, where, where Moses says, God will circumcise their hearts. And that is what is required. We see this again in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, where Paul writes, In him, Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so what we're really seeing here then is this is this this heart circumcision is a sign of the new covenant, right? Whereby Christians now live in accordance with that reality that they have been the recipients of God's grace. He goes on to use three words to further describe who we are, okay? He says, we are those who are worshiping, we are those who are boasting or glorying, and we are those who are placing no confidence in, okay? So those three words to help us to understand this identity that we have in Christ. First of all, we are worshiping in the Spirit of God, This is a life of servitude. This is a whole life that is served out in every aspect to God, to the glory of God, even as His Spirit enables you to live and to work, or to to live in, in, in every aspect of your life in this fashion. And so, let's just consider what this looks like, first of all, okay? Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2. We, we heard these verses read from Daniel yesterday as he, he explored them. And let's just take a look again at these couple of verses where Paul writes, By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, This is what faith in Christ looks like lived out. We no longer are a part of the world. We don't conform ourselves to the world, but we are being transformed, even as our minds are continually being renewed. But I draw your attention back to those very first words, the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? We know that mercy is when you are not treated according to how your sin or what your sin deserves, right? That's God's mercy. Well, consider this. Paul, in the book of Romans, he describes all of the mercies of God. Is your regeneration not a mercy of God? That he has given you something undeservingly? That he has not dealt with you as your heart of stone required him to, but rather that he has regenerated your heart, and now there's a new spiritual reality at play? That is by the mercy of God, as is your receiving of grace, as is one's election, predestination, as is one's conversion, where you are gifted both faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance to turn from your sin. 
These are the mercies of God. Union with Christ is a mercy of God. Adoption as his son is a mercy of God. Your justification, where you stand before God with a new legal standing, where he looks at you now and he sees you clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, because that's what's been credited to your account. That is a mercy of God in your life. And when you consider those mercies that he's given you, doesn't it cause your heart to take great delight in what God alone has accomplished, accomplished in your life? Doesn't that bring a smile to your face in what God has done for you and you didn't need to work at it? These are the mercies of God. And as we worship in the Spirit of God, we recall these realities. We recall these and we celebrate them. We live our lives in worship, in service to Him. This is not a chore. It brings us great delight to do just this. We also see in Hebrews chapter 13, two verses, 15 and 16, where the writer of Hebrews writes, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. So we see that in worshiping in the Spirit of God, there's, a, there's something that comes from our lips as we praise God, as we magnify God in worship, in our speech. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is our sacrificial service to God. We live in daily obedience before Him. It's not just speaking words, and yet not living out our lives in obedience before Him. No, do not neglect doing good. That doing is our obedience, our daily obedience, and it's reflected in every aspect of our lives. It's reflected in your business dealings. It's reflected in your conversations with family and friends. Your obedience needs to be reflected in your, your actions in accordance with a high view of God and all that He's done for you. And if you consider that, then it's no stretch then for Paul to go on saying that we are, these are, we are those who are glorying in Christ Jesus. This term for glorying is really also boasting. It's, it's often translated boasting by Paul. This is a very, very, uh, a familiar word to Paul, and in fact, he enjoys using this, this term of boasting. What do we boast in? Well, there's many things that we can boast in. We can boast in the perfect homage that Christ showed to his Father, right? There's much to boast in, in that. We can boast in his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect allegiance to the Father's plan. We can boast in all of these things. And more, we can boast in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can boast in the fact that he went to the cross and hung there so that you and I could be reconciled to God. There's much to boast about in Christ Jesus. I'm reminded of a familiar passage in Jeremiah chapter 9, where Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, Let not a rich man boast of his riches. 
But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And just as God delights in his own righteousness, so ought we to rejoice and take great delight in his righteousness, not any form of self-righteousness. Let us not... Brothers and sisters, let us not be found boasting in our own wisdom. Let us not be trying to get all intellectual on one another and then patting ourselves on the back. Let us not boast in the might that we might have, that the influence, the power, the prestige that the Lord has really given us, because all that we have comes from the Lord. Let's not boast in that. Let's boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's also not boast in our riches. I have noticed this is a very affluent community. This is a wonderful community that God has richly blessed, but let's not boast in our earthly treasures. Let's boast in that treasure that the Lord has given to us, that treasure that is in our hearts, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, let's place no confidence in the flesh. Let's not be like the Judaizers who simply were desiring to show an outward sign. That outward sign is what they were thinking was their righteousness. I say hogwash to that. No, let's place no confidence in the flesh, but let's place our confidence in the object, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's place our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... This morning we've seen that those with true Christian confidence are those who, like the Moravians in amidst the storms, they take great delight in rejoicing in the Lord. The circumstances around them don't matter. They're rejoicing in the Lord. They're finding reason to rejoice in the Lord. We've also seen that those with True Christian confidence do not place their confident hope then in false doctrine, in mutilation, works-based righteousness. No, that's not what they do. No, the true, genuinely saved Christian focuses on sound doctrine and places his or her confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All that needed to be accomplished on our behalf has been accomplished in his work. It's done. And then finally, we've seen that as true Christians, with a genuine confidence, we've placed that confidence in Christ, and it's shown through our worship, through our lives, in every area, every aspect of our lives. Whether you're at home alone and nobody else is around you to see you rejoicing in the Lord, or whether you're among the multitude and you're among the world, you're still constantly pointing even unbelievers back to Christ and taking great delight in all that he has done. We live our lives worshiping in the Spirit of God, boasting in Christ and placing no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in ourselves. Well, what about you? What about you? Have you placed your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? We know this is true, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Everyone. We all come into this world shackled to a sin nature. Just simply following after the desires of the flesh. You see this from the youngest of age and on. It's a reality. And yet we know this as well from Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us, his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in one simple verse is contained the whole gospel. We know that God, the creator, because he is sovereign, has made the rules, has set the standards by which every individual on this planet is to live. And yet, Adam and Eve very quickly found themselves in sin. And as a result, that sin nature has been passed along through the generations to every individual to walk this planet. Every individual, with the exception of one, praise God. Right? And we know that while man was hopelessly trapped in his sin and without a way of escape, there was nothing that any man could do to be reconciled to God. God looked after that detail in sending his son to the cross to suffer, to die, to experience the wrath of God for sin. And there he he went in obedience and humbly. He hung there. He died so that our sin could be dealt with. And not only did he die, but he was raised on the third day. The father was satisfied with his sacrificial death. And not only that, but the power of sin and death was, was broken. You see, you don't have to continue on in, under the influence of sin, under sin's power. You don't have to continue on that way. It's burdensome. Not only is it burdensome, but the the pleasure is so temporary, is it not? Some of you know this. The pleasure of sin is such a temporary pleasure, and then you're right back in your hopelessness, right back in your helplessness. And yet, what did God do? He sent Christ to die on the cross so that you wouldn't have to continue in that way, but that you would come before him, that you would turn from your sin that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in Him. And as Romans 10 says, when you do that, right, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a promise. And God sees through every one of the promises that He has given in His Word. So I don't know what would be keeping you this morning. I don't know what would keep, be keeping you right now from coming before the Lord and surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wholehearted surrender. I think of the rich young ruler who, who thought that just simply observing some of the law was going to be good enough. But what did Jesus say to him? No, you need to sell all your possessions and you need to then come follow me. Right? And he went away sad, for he loved the world more than he loved God. And it's interesting that the crowd around him, they said, well, then who can be saved? But what did Jesus say? What is, not, what is impossible with people is possible with God. Exact same principle that we've been talking about this morning, right? You on your own 
to, to, to really manufacture your own righteousness is an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. He's made that possible through Christ. And we can be very grateful. In fact, we can rejoice in the Lord for that. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this instruction. Thank you for for Paul's letter that really describes what the Christian life should be. Thank you for pointing out that this is a life of rejoicing in the Lord. This is a life where the heart is truly circumcised, where every area of our life is given in worship to God, where we take great delight in boasting in Christ Jesus and what he has done, and that we look to the world and place no confidence in it, and we place no confidence in our own so-called self-righteousness either. So God, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. Father, I pray at the same time that as the gospel has gone forth, Father, I pray that it would impact the hearts of those it needs to impact. We know that when your word goes forth, it does not return to you void. It will save some and it will further harden the hearts of others. Lord, let that not be so here this morning. Father, thank you for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.